coming up on this episode of the Jason Wright Show. But, you know, I'm the guy that actually put the cuffs on it. Stewart. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, it, it gets me every time uh, bringing it up. But, um, so to me, it was, uh, it wasn't epiphany. It was, uh, it was, a. Uh, you know, I think uh, I, I call it a God wink, you know, that, yeah. that, that, you know, <laughs> I've got you right where I want you. You want to live a life designed by you. You want more energy and vitality. You want to be a better thinker and doer. You want not just to live longer, but healthier longer. You want to increase your energy and focus to multiply your production. Once you do these things, you want to make it stick. I'm Jason Wright, creator of Massively Transformative Habits, and I want to be your personal performance coach. Through scientifically backed methodologies, I will show you not only what habits to adopt for a massively transformational life, but I will show you how to make them stick. Through this four evolution program, you and I will work together to help you design the life of your choosing. Are you in? Then let's go. I'm here yeah. to learn about the projects that you've done yeah. post FBI, which are really cool. You, uh, <laughs> you've researched two, I know for sure, for Expedition Unknown. Yes. Um, the, uh, the biggest criminals of all time, I guess you'd say. You know, <laughs> you've done a, the project with Dillinger. Yes. Looking for Dillinger's treasure. Yes. Really cool. I want to talk about that. You're an author. Yes. I want to talk about what happened out in Tenaha, Texas, which okay. is, you know, kind of here <laughs> here in our deep east Texas, yes. you know, some yeah. craziness behind going the on. Behind curtain. Exactly. All right. So, all right. So let's just say this. You're working on a project with a very famous uh, criminal duo. Yes. A lot of crime happened in Texas. Yes. But we can't talk about it. We can't, I we can't, can't talk about it. It's all right, top so secret. Whenever that happens, <laughs> you promise to come back. I do. Absolutely. Yes. It's because it's one of, uh, of the, this will be my third Expedition Unknown episode. Yeah. And, you know, um, I've had a blast doing these things, but so far this one is even more fun. And, ah. and so um, I actually know more about this particular case than I did the, the previous two. So it's something that, uh, you know, I just I just have a lot of knowledge about. And so I'm just having a blast, uh, you know, doing the research on it. And that kind of stuff to me is actually fun. It's not work. Well, tell me, what was the first one? I know the Dillinger one. What was the other one that you've done thus far? It was the uh, about the escape from Alcatraz in, oh. in 1962. Okay. I think I saw you posted. Maybe you posted something on LinkedIn about that or whatever. But mm -hmm. I didn't know about that one. So well, that gives us even more to talk about. Oh, yeah. That's, that, that's a really cool one. It really is. In fact, I'm, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think that might have been the highest rated expedition unknown ever okay and at the end of it i think we pretty much within i think a 99 percent conclusion determined that those three guys actually made it you know really? a successful escape yeah okay well yeah all right well then we got <laughs> let's just okay this is bonus then because yeah. i didn't even yeah. know we we're going to talk about alcatraz which is at one time it was the number one visited oh. Uh, tourist spot in San Francisco, I well, think. I, Maybe America. I, I mean, I don't know the, the stats on, on, on visitors or, or, or that kind of thing, but I know it's it's still you know very popular. Oh, in gosh. Fact, yeah. When we shot there, we had to start filming at 3.15 in the morning 
and be done by nine o'clock because it, you know, it's, it's a national park and yep. it opens and the public comes in. So we had to be out of there by nine o'clock. And I, I'll be honest with you, around 850, they were, they were pushing us. They, they were serious, but you guys, you gotta, you gotta hit it. So that's awesome. <laughs> All right. So, well, here's one of the things that I, here's where I want to start this off because, um, when we talked before doing this show, I told you, you know, you've, I knew you already had one job that was one of those what I want to be when I grow up type jobs. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if you, yeah. anytime, you, I guarantee you any cocktail party you've ever been to, when people say, oh, so Stuart, what do you do? You go, well, with the FBI, yeah. it's it's just, oh, really? Yes. It's just, it just. There is invariably a reaction. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes good, sometimes bad. But yeah, there's, but either, there's a reaction. There's a reaction. Um, so I want to talk about how that happened, because you also had an almost other career that was one of those what I want to be when I grow up careers of a <laughs> professional golfer. So from potential professional golfer to <laughs> uh, you know, FBI special agent. But then you didn't tell me the story. We saved it for today. There was something that was a big junction that you came to that really said, Nope, I'm doing exactly what I need to do. So yeah. kind of just help us understand, one, again, also, not only is whenever you get the reaction of FBI's, because one of those deals, like, people just think that they, like, pluck you out of school, like, you know, like, maybe you're, you're, you're 18 years old, you're a senior, and somebody knocks on the door of your history yes. class, you go, excuse me, uh, we need to see Mr. Fillmore, <laughs> and the government whisks you off, you yeah. go to Langley, and yeah. we never see you again until you're this trained, yes. you know, warrior or something, but... So how does one decide, you know what, I want to be in law enforcement and I want to be in the FBI. How did that kind of happen for you? Well, it's, it's you know, going back, my grandfather was an FBI agent from 1941 to 1962. Oh, so he was, that was Hoover years, right? Oh, wow. Prime Hoover years. In fact, I, uh, a few years ago, I got his personnel file through a Freedom of Information request um, and went through it. And it's amazing in those days how... Uh, J. Edgar Hoover was, you know, obviously it wasn't as big of an organization in those days, but Hoover, he was into the tiniest details. So that he, my, my grandfather's file is just full of letters from, from J. Edgar Hoover, sometimes praising his work and, and many times excoriating his work. Uh, so, and, and I mean, on small, tiny little cases, you know, really? but I'll just give one quick funny story on that that I noticed. Um, I believe it was Hurricane Carla in 1961, uh, he, and my grandfather was the he was the only FBI agent in Galveston, Texas at the time, which was a, a what's called a resident agency out of the Houston division, the Houston okay. office. And uh, Hurricane Carla was bearing down on the Texas coast, and um, uh, people were ordered to, to evacuate. Well, Mr. Hoover had said that uh, you know. We're, we're not evacuating. FBI agents are going to stay and man the office. I'm not quite sure what they were going to do other than maybe protect the files or something, I guess, if the, you know, if the, if the, the building was uh, destroyed or something. But um, so anyway, there's a letter in the file. Uh, it's to my grandfather and it's to another agent whose name was redacted who worked up the coast um, at the time in um, uh, Port Arthur. Okay. See, we don't have offices. There's not an office in Port Arthur, and there's not one in Galveston any, anymore. But um, in those days, there were. And so Hoover was praising my grandfather for staying in the office during Hurricane Carla, you know, manning the ship, so to speak. And the other agent, he just, he just excoriated the guy, just burned him to the ground. About, you know, you, you evacuated, you left the FBI space, and so forth. 
Um, and, and then there's, the, there's a, um, the agent replied and said, well, we were ordered by civil defense, you know, to, to evacuate. I mean, it was an order. Right. Um, and one thing about J. Edgar Hoover, and I know he's a controversial guy, but I, he, was, he was an administrative genius as far as setting up how um, to modernize the filing system and, that, and so forth. But um, he was the only one in the FBI who was allowed to write in blue ink. So if you saw something handwritten in blue ink, you knew it was straight from Hoover. Um, and so the, the agent's reply back was, you know, hey, civil defense ordered us to, uh, you know, to evacuate. And Hoover wrote, and you can tell, you can almost see the intensity um, in the in his writing, you know, that he wrote it with, with, you know, that he was was mad when he wrote it. But he said, since when do we take orders from civil defense? And I think there were a couple of exclamation points. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so, which that does kind of job with uh, with Hoover's it personality. It I does. Mean. It really does. But nonetheless, so my yeah, my grandfather retired in 1962. Um, unfortunately, I, I he died before I really got to know him or hear any of the firsthand stories, you know, from him. Um, the only thing I remember about him, it was, you know, kind of this jovial guy that uh, smoked a cigar. And uh, I, I've just always been a person that I can't really take cigarette smoke. I just, you know, uh, my mother was a lifelong smoker and I just never liked the smell of cigarette smoke. Yeah. But for, I, I, but I, to this day, I love the smell of a cigar. Same. Uh, Same. You know, it, to me, it's a pleasing smell. Uh. And uh, I don't. I wouldn't consider myself a cigar smoker, but you know, yeah. I will occasionally have it. And to me, it brings back memories of just you know my grandfather. That, that like I said, I just didn't really know him. I was too young. Um, so so anyway, growing up, I had that in the back of my mind that he had been an FBI agent, which you know was in, in, in at least in our generation that was something that was uh, you know man you looked up to that that was something that was really cool, okay. and you know you had movies about the G Men and, yeah. and all that stuff, and just from a very early age, I was fascinated with that stuff, gangsters and gunfighters. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure if I'd, I, I think I went through phases where I identified with the gunfighter or the, the gangster or the G-man, you yeah. know, um, th but just that whole world um, uh, definitely appealed to me. I just just was drawn to it. So Dillinger and, and you know, those the, the gangsters of that era to me was just, you know, something that was really cool. And and the, and the FBI was involved in that. And I just, you know, I just was always fascinated with it. So but. When I, you know, when I stopped, got to college, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Despite, you know, having that fascination with the FBI, I think, I think my impression was the same as yours. I, I don't really know how, you know, that, you know, boy, someone like me, just an average guy like me, could never get in. Yeah. Although I guess, you know, my grandfather was. So, so I. I, I, th but that logic didn't hit. Yeah, me, it's know? like it's not a real job. It's just reserved for these special people. We don't know how they get there, exactly. but we know they do. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> how bizarre. I thought of it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, I, um, you know, I started college and and didn't know what I wanted to do. And I talked to a counselor, and the counselor said, um, "Well, there, you know, uh, the outlook for accountants looks good." And uh, so. I, I didn't know what accounting was, <laughs> you know, I didn't know anything. Uh, I just said, okay, that sounds good. So, so I did that. And so my, you know, my major was accounting. Okay. And um, uh, in those days, the FBI primarily hired lawyers and accountants. So that's, that's really how that path got started. But to, to backtrack a second about the, uh, the, the maybe alternate career in a parallel universe that might have been, 
Um, I was a I was a tennis player as a child growing up, and I was pretty good at tennis and and competitive at it. And um, tennis is a sport that, um, uh, it, for me at least, was in, in the competitive realm of it. Um, it almost became like a blood sport, yeah. uh, and where when you played tennis, it, it, in those days for me, it wasn't for fun; it was for blood. Can and, I can I tell you one of the worst stories on myself ever about tennis? Okay, <laughs> so. You know, I don't know what this says about the podcast, but my 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 mother and father don't even listen to my podcast, so uh, so I don't have to worry about her hearing this story, you know, and and bringing it up to me again at at Thanksgiving or anything. But so we were playing. I grew up playing tennis also, mm-hmm. and it wasn't that great, but I loved it, and I was very competitive, and I was a terrible sport. And one day we were playing in this mother daughter or mother daughter mother son yeah. tournament, uh-huh. and I'm just playing horribly. And so it's my turn to serve. I served every single first or serve into the net just to get through the game. I was so angry. I was, uh, and I, I wasn't uh, trying. I mean, it was just me sure. being a bad sport. Yeah. I've never lived that down. Yeah. But I mean, that's the type of tennis player I was. Yeah. I did eventually win a city championship against Stephen Clark when we were like, 10, I think. Okay. And that was the height of my tennis glory steer. Okay. I mean, okay. so my, I was not quite the tennis player you were. I love the sport. I suck at it. I'm horrible. But it, what, it is one of those sports I can totally relate to you in that it is one of those that, man, it's just all bets are off. I, I, there's yeah. nothing that gets me more frustrated than a bad day on the tennis courts. Yes. So anyway. And no, no, I, I, I agree. I was the same way. I, I, I've said before that for me, it felt like in those days, looking back on it, that, you know, walking onto the court, I was walking into the octagon, yeah. you know, for, oh, for yeah. a life or death match. Um, and, and, and eventually that, I, I look back now, that pressure just, is just, you know, uh, I was probably too emotionally uh, immature to handle it. And so I, I just quit. I just absolutely quit. And so, that, and that was, uh, that was right the summer after I graduated high school. I, I just was done with tennis. I, I and I, I didn't get back to it for twenty twenty seven years later to do wow. that to get back into it. But um, that, I think maybe within a couple of weekends after after graduating high school, um, I went with a friend to play golf. And just really from the very first day, I went out there uh, on the golf course. I just had a knack for it. I could hit the ball. I could hit it solid. And if anybody out there that plays golf knows that feeling of hitting a solid golf ball, it's what it's really it's what brings you back, or at least for me, that's what you know. That's what fascinated me because yeah, that hasn't happened enough to bring me back. So I freaking <laughs> suck, dude. Another another good story. I mean, the last time I really played by myself was uh, we were I was in Houston and I was playing as part of a business outing or whatever. Third hole in, I caught a ride back to the clubhouse. Said I'm done. I'll never play this game again. I mean, I just, I again, I am a, I'm a horrible sport. I don't take losing well. And the thing about golf for me is that's a sport that it takes a lot of time, a lot of persistence, a lot of money. Yes, to get really good at. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm not going to invest all that in it. I'm just, I suck. Right. I can't. I know you have to suck. It's anything worth doing is worth sucking for a while. Yeah. And with with golf, I just was like, no. no exactly. I, it does. It does everybody a lot of good if I just stay away from the golf course. <laughs> so I, I never had many of those enough of those hits to keep me going back. Yeah. So, so, but, but I I, I want to say, and I'm probably wrong on this, but I want to say like the very first ball. I hit. 
I, I hit it solid and it just went straight as a string and I was hooked from that moment. You're built like a golfer. I yeah. mean, you're athletic, you know, yeah. you're lean, you know, so yeah, that's good. It, you know, and, and I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm blessed with a certain amount of hand-eye coordination yeah, and so, obviously. you know, um, uh, it, but as it turned out, I was really good at the short game in, in golf, chipping and putting and that's really that's where it, that's yep. where it is. If you can keep the ball in play and chip and putt, you know, you can, you can, you can make good golf scores and yep. so very quickly after starting golf i was shooting close to par sometimes even a little under par wow um but um so that said that that was you know i was in college at that time and and uh, in austin texas at the time at least you could play Lions Municipal Golf Course very cheap. I won't, as a student, I think it was maybe three dollars. I don't know. It was ridiculously low. <laughs> it was ridiculously, ridiculously cheap, and they had a driving range there. And so, um, a lot of my time uh, was spent on the golf course. Um, honestly, not with the intent with the intention of getting good enough. I thought maybe that I could make the team at Texas. Or that I could, uh, you know, really, I, won't, I had the thought of turning pro. Mm. I look back now; it was it's, it was a very naive outlook. But you know, um, I, you know, as, as we get older, we all realize, you know, you think at, at 21 years old, you think you've got it all figured out. Yeah. And now I hope I have the wisdom to realize I don't even have it figured out at age 59. But um, at that time, that was my intention: was that I wanted to practice and get good enough and try to play on the team and then maybe play pro right. golf. Um, and, and I just didn't, you know, I, I, again, I got good really quickly, but I didn't get to that level. Um, so anyway, uh, you know, I, um, I, I found out, I, I honestly can't even remember now. Um, but I, I, you know, I found out that the FBI had hired lawyers and accountants. So I, I just applied to it, uh, you know, and ended up, I got a job as a support employee. Uh, in the Dallas office. And real quick, why why are they why lawyers and account? I guess the lawyers I can kind of understand, and accountants I guess have a good attention to detail. But why why lawyers and accountants? Well, in, the, in okay, so so when the FBI first started, I, I want to say there were a couple. It started in 1908, and and there were a couple of directors there uh, previous to J. Edgar Hoover, who uh, basically were political cronies that that ran it. You know, just uh, you know, as as a political. Arm, right. which some would argue maybe we're right back to that now. Yeah. But um, Hoover came in as director in 1924, and uh, with the intention of making it a professional, uh, you know, uh, law enforcement organization. A lot of the special agents were just friends of the director, and no law enforcement experience, and you know, certainly no um, professionalism at it. And so, I, I think that was the intention was to make it a professional. Um, you know, or, uh, law enforcement organization with uh, using modern uh, uh, techniques and scientific uh, analysis like fingerprints and, and stuff like that. Um, and so that, that was the and, and why lawyers and accountants, um, you know, accountants, obviously, to for financial type cases, yeah. you know, the, the old saying, follow the money. Yeah. That, I mean, that that is so true for all, almost any. And, and let's face it. I mean, you know, you have murders and, and things like that. But most most crimes come back to money. Yeah. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. And so, um, uh, you know, I guess that's it. And then lawyers, you know, lawyers are, were uh, certainly it, it gives the air of professionalism and, yeah. and so forth. So I, okay. I, I guess that's where I, and, and that's my speculation. Uh, I've never seen it written exactly why that was. But but nonetheless, that was the trend. Um, and and you, have, you have to keep in mind, I went into the FBI in 1987 uh, 
Jager Hoover was the director from 1924 to 1972. That's crazy. So he had only been dead 15 years That's when I, so I got in, yeah. which makes me feel old, honestly. But, you know, there were a lot of guys that were still there that were, very, you know, still younger than I am now that were, you know, had been under Hoover. So wow. that, that influence was still very much there, you know. Um, yeah, so I, you know, I went in as a support employee. That was the height of the uh, savings and loan crisis uh, back in those days. And yep. so that's, uh, that was the first type of stuff that I, I worked on. And, uh, you know, my, like I said, I, I really didn't have any burning desire to do anything. I, I still, at this point in my life, still had it in the back of my head that, you know, I wanted to be a golf pro. Okay. I, I, you know, that, that was really, I, I you know, and I, I kept playing. I, I, you know, and I, like you said, it takes a lot of time. And I think any spare time I had, I was trying to, to hone my game and mm-hmm. to, you know, to get better and better at it. Um, and, and the FBI was just, I, at that time was just something I thought, this is, this is really a cool job. It's really cool to be here. But I didn't think in terms of a career. I didn't, you know, I just thought, you know, you'll do this a couple of years and then, you know, mm-hmm. go on to something else. Um, but I, I spent three years as, as a support employee in Dallas, you know, working and helping with these financial crimes. And then I applied to be a special agent, got accepted into that, went through the training at Quantico and then got assigned to Little Rock. Um, in 1990. And in 1990, you still had the tail end of the, the savings and loan thing. So there were a few cases there. And then shortly after being in Little Rock, uh, Bill Clinton was you know, elected president mm-hmm. and he appointed numerous people you know, from Arkansas to fairly high level positions you know, uh, in the government. And so as a young agent uh, in Little Rock, uh, I pretty much became the background investigator doing uh, what were called spins, special investigations uh, to uh, or special, special investigation or special inquiry. I don't remember. Basically, background investigation yep. um, on these Clinton appointees, you know, and it's it's very mundane work. It's, uh, you know, you go out and you, you find their references, you go talk to their references, you know, if they tell you, you just, and if for the most part, they're going to say, oh, this is the greatest guy that ever walked mm-hmm. the earth. And, you know, and they're not going to tell you anything negative. And if right. they do, you know, then you, 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 you run that to ground and so forth. Um, and, and I worked on uh, uh, Vince Foster, mm-hmm. Webb Hubble, uh, all those, wow. those high-level Clinton yeah. folks, you know, I yeah. did their backgrounds. Wow. You know, and, and I, um, I, I look back on that now and, you know, and I remember, like I said, Vince Foster, Oh man, I just thought, man, everybody says this guy, this guy must be so yeah. impressive, and you know, and then a few years later he commits suicide, and so, yeah. I, you know, I, I I think I realized at that point that uh, you know, um, maybe maybe these things aren't what they're cracked up to be these background investigations because yeah. it just seems we're just scratching the surface, and, yeah, you know. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, you know, I was too, I didn't have enough seniority to question anything. I just did what I was told. Yeah. You know, and. and uh, well, that's, that's got to be kind of a tough spot, too. I mean, you know, hey, by the way, the uh, president-elect of the United States had, wants this guy for a job. Yes. So, Stuart, knowing that. Yes. Why don't you go find out if he, if the president-elect has made a it, good it, choice. Exactly. <laughs> that's exactly. a tough so, spot to be in, man. Well, and. and also, too, I, I um, 
you know, when I told you, when I first got in, there were still agents from the Hoover era that were, you know, that they were, you know, they were in the, the, the ends of their careers, sure. you know, these guys. But um, the one thing that I remember about all of them was they all seemed to be angry. <laughs> I remember because I was just, I, I thought, you know, this is the coolest place to be. I just right. love it. You know, and all these old guys seem mad all the time. I didn't understand it. Um, and what, what I now know, looking back on it, is you know, a, a, a life in law enforcement makes you cynical. It, oh. uh, it really does. And, you know, uh, it's certainly nothing like what, um, a, let's say, a combat soldier faces. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, certainly nothing like that. Right. But over the course of a career, um, I think especially like a street cop and, you know, people that have to deal with reactionary situations every day. Yeah. Um, you know, I think there, you develop a low grade PTSD yeah. type thing. I don't think there's an official diagnosis for that, but you certainly become very, very cynical. Um, well, you know what? I mean, okay, so you say that and that I never thought about it, but like, so for one thing, everyone that talks to you, if they're under investigation, for example, mm-hmm. they're probably lying to you. So my gosh, you, exactly. you, you, for you to find someone, it's kind of like when a billionaire walks into a room for, for the billionaire to find a person who's genuine. It's just going to be so hard, you know, because right. everyone's going to be, you know, jockeying for whatever right. uh, a seat at the table. FBI comes up, and even if they're innocent, you're still like, you know, it's the FBI, this yes. guy, what's he looking for? So yeah, that's exactly. got to be tough. You, you got to want to just tell people, hey, just freaking relax and be honest with me. So I never thought about that would be yeah. kind of it, something it, it that would cause one to be cynical. It, it wears on you. It really yeah. does. Every day you get, you, you just, you just, I mean, you just start off with almost anyone that you talk to. You just start off with well, a baseline of that they're going to lie to me first. <laughs> So, you know, how long do we have how long do we have to talk to get through till we get to the truth? Right. So, you know, and, and that just Well, I told you the truth. I really did win the city championship one year whenever I was like 10. So, <laughs> okay. so all right. Well, we'll I did not lie under oath. <laughs> we'll check that later. Um so, you know, I, I um they're so from Little Rock, um within a few years I was um uh, they did what were called rotational transfers. Okay. So in those days, and that means that you're you were initially assigned to a small to medium office like Little Rock, mm-hmm. um, and then you you did what big office time or uh, top ten or top twelve offices. You know, uh, this would be New York, Chicago, L.A., the, Dallas, those kind of offices. So I got rotated to Chicago. And believe it or not, you know, in Chicago, uh, there, there wasn't much. I can't see why there was much need for it, but I was on the government fraud squad. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't think there'd be any government fraud in Chicago. Chicago, right? yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I did that. And, and um, uh, every day in Chicago, I was uh, I lived to afford someplace, you know, you had to live out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so lived about 35 miles from the office out in the in the western suburbs of Chicago and every day I was facing a 2 hour drive in 2 hour plus drive home at night I mean it was it was really just oh man just wore on you um and so the um I saw a memo come out that the uh, the surveillance squad was looking for uh volunteers uh, uh in the bureau at least uh, in Chicago that was not if you were interested in advancing your career, getting on the surveillance squad was not the not the top of the list. Right. Um, it, they worked weird hours. They worked. Uh, These are the guys in the white vans with you know with the computer honing devices or what? I mean, is that kind of well? Um, I don't remember if we. I don't think we had a white van. 
Well, or I guess, yeah. or maybe like maybe a trash truck that was owned by the FBI. You guys are hiding out. I mean, similar just things watching to that. Stuff? Similar things to that. But, okay. but yeah, just just basically, we had uh, we didn't have the the typical government issue cars. We God, had yeah. just just regular cars that looked every day. You're just you watching know. stuff. Just, just, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know. And so um, the only thing that I knew about surveillance was that, like I said, it's it's not a real sought after thing. That's why they're that's why they're having to look for volunteers. They have a lot of people raising the hand for this. But what I knew was is that they had an off-site location, mm-hmm. and I knew it wasn't far from my house. So, gee, I, you know, being four hours in the car, you know, just, just commuting was killing me. I ended up now being in the car eight hours a day right. with surveillance, but it was way different, uh, you know. So, so for instance, um, let's say that uh, the bank robbery squad has a, has a bank robbery suspect, and um, they just want to see where he goes and what his pattern of things is. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we would we would find where this guy is. We'd start a, an eight-hour shift and, and just just see where he went. And, uh, you know, it, to me, it was a lot of fun because I was still relatively young at that time. Um, you had the way surveillance works is uh, whoever's you're following, you know, someone will be close by relatively close behind him that's the eye so the eye has is is following and we have radio communication okay and so the rest of the team stays back away and the eye just calls out where they are what's going on but you're the team is behind and but close enough because every so often you switch who the, who has the eye okay so that if this guy's looking in his rearview mirror right he's not seeing the same car back there Okay. So we switch out the eye, and there's there's probably four or five of us, or maybe even six or seven at times. Um, and so in Chicago, at least, to be in that trailing team that's not the eye, okay, you wouldn't believe how aggressive you had to drive to keep up, so that when it's your turn to take the eye, or if this thing goes crazy, you're you're close enough to be able to respond. Right. Um, and, and to not know, and again, the guy doesn't look back in his rearview mirror and go, "Wow, why? Why is what's going on back there?" Exactly. So, so um, uh, in Chicago traffic, it was just a nightmare <laughs> to try to keep up, but it was so much fun. Yeah, because uh, you got to you know, run red lights, you got to drive like a crazy man. <laughs> uh, stop signs and red lights became suggestions, you know, <laughs> because if you stop, if you got stopped at a, at a red light, okay, and, and the surveillance keeps going. There's a good chance you're not ever going to catch up. Wow. Um, that you know, and and so you had to you had to keep up and you had to drive aggressively to do it. And for me in those days, that was a lot of fun. It wouldn't be fun now. Yeah. Um, but the but but the also we also worked weird hours, and so um, that allowed me a lot of times to be home. Uh, you know, during the day. Yeah. Uh, and so, as it turns out, uh, kind of like when I was in Austin, there was a golf course near near my house. That if you were a resident of that particular suburb uh, where the golf course was, and you showed them uh, your, I think your water or electric bill to to establish that you actually live there, you got a like a maybe a half price break on the green fee, and so it was uh, so it was relatively cheap to play this course. It was right <laughs> by my house, and so I had a lot of time during the day, you know, to, to go do it, and it just kind of had the course to my health, myself many times. So I, I kind of got that. Um, you know, I just got to play a lot and, you know, and, and my game got a little sharper and I, you know, I was in my early thirties and I, you know, it was still had that itch. I still had that itch to, to, you know, to, that I could 
play pro golf. Mm-hmm. And I realized at the time that I'm, I'm somewhat at a crossroads that if, if I, you know, if I don't do this now, um, you know, uh, it'll, it'll never happen. So, um, I, I signed up and I, at the time you had the PGA tour and you had the, the secondary tour, which I forget what it was called at the time. Um, maybe the Hogan tour. But anyway, you had the PGA tours is the essentially the major leagues, yeah, right? right? And then there was a secondary tour, um, and then there was a third level tour at the time uh, called it was Hooters, the restaurant Hooters sponsored. It was called the Hooters tour. Right. So essentially, it was minor league, you know, professional mm-hmm. golf. Mm-hmm. And so they had a um, they had a qualifying tournament to for their tour that would get you exempt, and so that would get you into every tournament. And uh, so I, I played in the in the qualifying tournament. It was down in Florida. Um, I had never, you know, I'd never played really, you know, I, I was a tennis player growing up. I just got good at golf. I'd never played competitive golf. So, you know, the, uh, the, the, the first, on the first tee of that qualifying tournament, you know, I was, I had the jitters like you wouldn't believe. And I hit the ugliest, ugliest shot off the tee that would, it, it got maybe, maybe, maybe 10 feet off the ground and, and went maybe 50 yards yeah. and just was ugly. Um, you know, and I ended up though, you know, I, I, I kept going, kept going, kept playing. Um, uh, I don't remember what my scores were, especially that first day. Um, I might've broken 70, but I, I don't think I did. Um, but it, nonetheless, my scores for that tournament, that qualifying tournament were not good enough to be exempt, probably, probably not even close. Yeah. Um, but I did get a couple of calls, uh, later on that summer, uh, to play in some Hooters events. And so I did, I did that. Uh, same thing. I, I I shot right around par. I didn't make uh, didn't make the cut. So par is not going to cut it in in pro golf. And um, but I did actually uh, kind of I you know I guess I, 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 I say the mountaintop. I got to the top of the mountain a little bit and kind of had the view of it and thought you know I maybe I could do this. I, I'm 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 you know these I'm not I'm not making the cut here. I'm not. Um, uh, you know, I'm not the leader in the tournament, but I don't feel uncomfortable where I'm at. Yeah, I, and I, you're still doing it at a level that very few people do. It's what I always say about, you know, when I look at actors that end up on, first of all, I didn't realize until um, I was talking to my buddy, Brady Smith, who's been an actor for years, and he does a lot of national TV mm-hmm. spots, and they make a fortune doing those, mm-hmm. I mean, because they get paid every time they run. But I've always thought to myself, you know, if you want to be an actor and actress, and all you end up doing is commercials. At least you're not an accountant, you know. Exactly. Yes. You, you, at right. least you're not. Yep. You, you're yep. actually you're doing what you love. Maybe not the level, but so as I say the same thing with people that have played, you know, minor league baseball. So at least you're getting a taste of yes. what it a would taste. be That's like. That's a better way to say it. I of, a taste of if it. I were a pro golfer, and by the way, I'm actually taking it to a level that either just because people don't have the guts to go say, you know what, I'm going to go try to qualify for one of these tournaments. I don't care. So, so I admire what you were doing. <laughs> I mean, man, cause uh, that, you know, one of the things you know about me is I'm like, I'll do all the weird stuff that nobody else will do. And there's mm-hmm. not many people like us that'll go, what the hell? Yeah. I'll be, I'll go try to be a pro golfer, right. you know? So, exactly. so I get it, man. Yeah. There's a long way of saying, I get exactly what you're saying. So you're, <laughs> you're looking at it and you can kind of feel it. You know, it's a nice simulation of what life could be like if you were to really exactly. dig in. Okay. I got it. And, you're exactly well said. 
So yes, a good simulation. But the reality of it was I, I didn't have the money to, to support that, you know, pursuing that, you know, to, yep. to sustain myself chase, chasing tournaments. Mm. Uh, especially if you don't make the cut, you don't make any money. Yeah. I just didn't I just didn't have the money to do it and, and I wasn't good enough um, to attract a sponsor. So I, it just it just was I, I just basically that, that taught me or I, I realized Hey, you're good. You're not good enough, uh, or at least your cir- the circumstances don't allow you to pursue this. And and I made peace with it, you know, and and just decided from then on, you know, okay, the 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 the, the pursuit now of, of trying to be a pro golfer was, you know, pretty much. Uh, I won't say finished. That's not the right word, but but um, um, I, I came to peace with it, and mm-hmm. just you know, I I didn't feel like there there was no regret that like. Oh my, you know, my life is uh, ruined because I didn't make this or whatever. Um, it was just, you know, it was another. It was just a lot of it was just being naive and young, and you know, you know, have, you have that feeling when you're young that you can just do anything. Yeah. Um. And, and and I, you know, I at, at age 32, I think I still probably had a touch of that. That you know, everything is possible. Um. But yeah. But real quick, can I commend you on something? Because it's something I talk a lot about in this podcast, Stuart. Is that the doing away with regrets and you have to get rid of a regret today that you could have tomorrow. Right. And so, you know, so many people won't even take that step. They'll just, what if their self to their, to their dying day? What if, what if, what if you said something, you made peace with it. You, you, you gave it a shot. Yeah. And even if it was, maybe you could have gone further. Maybe you could have found the money, but you gave it enough of a shot to look back today, sitting here in 2023 at my, yeah. at my dining room table and go, I tried it and realized, and I'm glad I did, Yeah, oh, but, yeah. but I'm at peace with it. Yep. So many people, I think, fall into this trap of, I could never do that. And, and then they end up, when it's way too late, they look back on life and they go, because we always hindsight is twenty twenty, and also we gain wisdom as we go. Yeah. We realize we're a, we're a lot more able to take lumps and take take setbacks. And you look back and go, I don't know. I'll never know. And, and it's like exactly. it's like I always like to tell people there is no pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Mm-hmm. There's only that gold you pick up along the way. Right. And I'm a firm believer in this case. Yes. As long as you live, you will look that you will have your pot sitting by your bedside and go, you know what? That's a nugget of gold. That I can tell you what it's like to pl- I, c- I can tell you what it's like to play at a competitive level yep. where I'm having to tee off and the, the spectators are bearing down on me, which to me is one of the most nerve wracking things. I'm not a golfer, <laughs> but I do. You know, I've I've gone to watch tournaments and I think yep. to myself, these guys that are teeing off with all these people right there, it's like I can't even do it when there's no one around. Yep. So I, I mean, I just want to commend you and encourage anybody that's either watching or listening. Sure, you know. Give it a shot. Yeah. If nothing is, if the only, I, I agree. If the only victory in it is that you rid yourself of future regret, I think it's worthwhile. So yes. thanks for indulging that tangent because, but I just, I really do admire the fact that you at least said, I'm going to give this a shot. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. Now, you know, I, I, again, it was, I agree with you, and, and and I think I think the same thing. People, if if, if there's something, a dream that you have, pursue it. Yep. I mean, you know, as as I get older, I realize life is so short. <laughs> it is you know, so short, and man. so and it goes by so fast. And you know, it's just you don't want to look back and say, "Man, I could have done that, or I should have done that, or whatever." Yep. Um, but um, really, it was just more just more of a, a, a naive 
youth youthful outlook yeah. i think more than yeah. anything I, but i look back now and i, I agree that's that's it that's a well well said one more thing i want to add to this and there's a uh, this huge ongoing survey it's called the uh, the the world regret survey or something like that mm-hmm. that a lot of researchers participate in i think i've got that right that it's ongoing but every time they look at the research of all the regrets that people have number one is always something they didn't do versus something they did and this yeah. can be even when you're taking into account people that have truly destroyed families destroyed yes. lives right. yeah they they're, they're in prison yeah you take all of these different categories of regret and number one each and every time is something that i didn't do that yes. i could have so yeah. anyway yeah yeah, yeah just kind of just to go ahead and try to just hammer that point home <laughs> so no i love it um so after that i shortly after um uh, after that uh you know this when i had this realization about that hey you know the pro golf thing is just not going to happen yep. i actually got uh what was in those days was called an op transfer office of preference so the way it worked in the fbi is, is uh you know you 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 can get on a list to go back to an office of your preference. And um, it's based on seniority and, and the needs of the office there. And I was really lucky. I, I got, uh, uh, they needed some, an agent in Tyler. And I was, uh, you know, I was on the list for it. And I got the call and I said, yeah, sign me up. I'm, I'm on my way. You know, uh, in, in the FBI, it's not often that you get to go back to your hometown. Yeah. So, I, you know, to get back to Tyler, Texas for me was awesome. And in fact, I, you know, I had I, I did 29 total years in the FBI. 19 of them were in, in Tyler, Texas. That's pretty sweet. So, that yeah, it, sweet. Oh, it, 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 and, you know, I told you that one of the one of my main things about that I had, had got on the surveillance squad was just to avoid the, the, the commute, you know, into mm-hmm. the office. Um, I went from, you know, a four hour total commute in Chicago to when I got back to Tyler, I was one red light from the office. Isn't that awesome? You know, (laughs) so, and that's maybe at times is a little close to be honest. Uh, but, uh, uh, maybe somewhere in between those, those two extremes, but, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want any kind of commute, didn't have it. And, and so, uh, just for me at least it was just a better quality of life you know i had 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 a young son at the time my daughter was later born you know after we got back to tyler so um it just was just it just made for a better quality of life uh you know an, an easier quality of life so uh yeah so i get back to tyler and you know i still had that um and, and, and as far as FBI work, uh, you know, in a small RA resident agency, which Tyler is a is an RA out of the Dallas division, okay. um, you know, it, it's a small office. We had ten agents, and we covered uh, all the surrounding counties, uh, you know, in Tyler and some in the in the deeper East Texas area. Um, you know, you you work whatever walks in the door. So, like in Chicago, we were on very you know. Uh, specific squads that work certain uh, federal violations, bank robbery squad, government fraud squad, bank fraud squad, you know, uh, and if there was, you know, if there, if there was a bank robbery, you know, the government fraud squad guys didn't roll on the bank robberies. Right. Okay? In Tyler, there's a bank robbery, the whole office rolled on it, right? So, so we worked, uh, what, you know, you, you kind of had some specialties that you work, but, you, but mainly you work whatever came in the door because it was just, uh, you know, there were so few of us. Which, by the way, I want to ask you about that. Yeah. So 
I'm, I'm still blown away with the exception of a movie like Heat, where you see like it's a very sophisticated operation on how to rob a bank yeah, and, right. or or maybe um, uh, the Dark Knight, Batman or something mm-hmm. like that, the Joker. The fact that people still try to rob banks yeah, blows I my mind. I so I got to ask you, are most bank robberies in the 21st century, are they still sophisticated or are they both mostly just morons that think, yeah, I'm going to go rob a bank to, to seal my fortune? and if they are pretty sophisticated, what is the most, whether it's a case you worked or just one you heard about, what's the most sophisticated way someone's ever taken a, a bank? If you can talk about that, I well, guess. Well, so, uh, you know, I, uh, when I was in Dallas in the, in the late 80s, uh, you know, I was a support employee, so I didn't work any bank robberies. But at that time, there was a bank robber there known as the Dapper Bandit. And, okay. uh, uh, and he he wore it like a suit, uh, had had a mask on. Uh, you know, would go in, rob the bank. You know, he always stole a car first. That okay. that's that's the main thing is, is they get there in a stolen car and then dump the car. Okay. Later. Um. You, you know, and the Dapper Bandit was. Um, man, I, I the, all the, the the times and dates are fuzzing on me at the moment, but uh, you know, it was a big deal at the time. Um, what was his mo? Would he use a gun, or would he just like say, "Hey, I've got a"? I don't, I, you know, honestly, I don't remember now. I, I'm almost certain he used a gun. Um, and then he, he he would get away. And then where, where this guy was smart was in his daily life. You know, he 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 kept a very low profile. He didn't he didn't um, have this extravagant lifestyle. Did he have he, a real job? Um, I don't think he did. And that was one of the things that was that was uh, maybe cause people to suspect sure. him but but no one i don't think any it's people only made a sense of that afterwards okay no one had, had made that connection before he was caught and he got caught in traffic of all things um but uh yeah he he, he maintained this this lifestyle you know relatively modest lifestyle um you know and didn't tell anyone about it that that's the big thing because um most cases are made by some idiot or moron that <laughs> that talks about it, right you know and then someone else tells so that, that that's 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 generally you know how it works and most bank robberies you know that's the case it's just you know um desperate people making you know just bad decisions right and and i'll say this too that in my experience in the fbi and and yeah, you know, the whole time i worked i was a criminal agent i never worked uh counterintelligence or any or, Maybe a little bit after nine eleven, but mm-hmm. um, but none of that none of that spy stuff. I, I was always a criminal agent and always on the street too. Um, but in my experience, I found that you know I think I think a lot of people have this image that it's the good guys against the bad guys and cops and robbers and that kind of thing. Um, what I found in reality is is that most people who who you would consider the bad guy or that, who, you know, whoever, whoever the criminals were that we were, you know, had cases against or that we arrested or whatever, for the most part, they, they weren't really what I would call bad people. They mm-hmm. were people that just, just, you know, their life circumstances, you know, they just made bad choices, just yeah. stupid choices. Yeah. And maybe it, it was a generational situation in the family that they, they they'd never seen anything different, right. you know, and, 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 um, but but if you really talk to people and you got to you know on that genuine level, like I said, you have to get past the lying first. But but, but it, you know they 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 weren't bad, you know, um, just I, desperate. 
just desperate. Well said. Wow. Um, that said, there, there actually are some truly evil people out there. And luckily, in my experience at least, there are they're, they're fewer of them than you would think. But there are some people that just aren't redeemable. And just, yeah. you know, I, I say they don't have a soul. Yeah. Um, and, and, and they are out there for sure. But, but, but just your typical average person that might decide that it's to go rob a bank. Um, you know, it's really going to be not just not because of their circumstances. I mean, of the of who they are, but just really their circumstances that brought them to that. And uh, you know, I, I, a lot of times, honestly, on cases that I worked, you know, where I ended up putting someone in jail, uh, or at least the work I did resulted in that. I, I, I be honest, I, I have I felt sorry for them, you yeah. know, uh, and uh, you know, I. You know, I hope that uh, in many cases that it would be that what they were experiencing, having to go to jail or whatever, would be you know a wake up call, and that you know, and that maybe they could uh, turn their lives around. Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't happen very often. So I, I you know, in, in the bigger scheme of things, how we fix that, I, I really don't know. But um, uh, you know, that was uh, something that just an observation of mine over the years. That, like I said, I just you know, you, there, there aren't really bad people so mm-hmm. much as just desperate people. Right. Yeah. All right. So now you told me when we last visited that after this epiphany, that all right, I gave it a shot. I played some amateur golf. Right. But then there was another, and you question, you're in Chicago, because we've gotten back to Tyler, but I want to go back to Chicago, because yeah. I think that's where you had a moment. I think you were in Chicago when you were decide, when you had this kind of lightning bolt, I'm where I need to be. Okay. I, no, here. I was actually in Tyler. Was it in Tyler? Okay. I was in Tyler, yeah. So it wasn't so long now, after I got here. It was, okay. in, it was around two, uh, 2000 or 2001. Okay. Um, and so- uh, let me backtrack on that a second because um, that's that's where I was headed next. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, so yeah. I, I had I got the op to, to Tyler, and I'm really happy about that. But I still, in the back of my mind, to me, I'm still thinking, what am I going to do when I grow up? Yep. You know, I, even though I'm not unhappy, you know, in the FBI, uh, it's you know, uh, let me say this real quick. Um, I essentially kind of fell into the FBI because I had an accounting degree. I didn't want to be an accountant. Uh, you know, I knew that that's what they look for. So, you know, and I've never actually used any accounting skills whatsoever. <laughs> so, um, and I, I'm not, I'm not naturally an accounting type person. So uh, I never, luckily I never had to use any of those skills. So, um, you know, but but for me, what turned out to be a good fit for the FBI was I, I like I like solving puzzles. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I'm I'm a puzzle guy. In fact, before I came here, and every day I do the uh, I do Wordle, and I do a crossword puzzle and a Sudoku puzzle. So we're, we're big we're a big Wordle family here. Okay, that, yes. So <laughs> don't don't say anything because uh, no, I did. I got it on the fourth try today. So okay. I, I have I have finished the Wordle for the day. Okay. <laughs> so so uh, you know, and and again, it's kind of like a, a working on these expedition unknown shows yep. about gangsters it's not work to me it's 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 play i, I, I don't have to make myself do this right. so it's just a natural thing and and so for me that's what was what i enjoyed about fbi work and you know and 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 was in working cases was just solving the puzzle of mm-hmm. it you know um that's what was interesting to me it wasn't so much about that I'm the good guy and I'm looking for the bad guy or truth and justice and that kind of thing. For me, it was just more or less, hey, I like, I like getting a set of facts and, 
and 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 solving the puzzle around it you know um and so that's what fit for me but that but that said i still kind of had that thought that you know man I, I still think i ought to do something else you know what else is there to do um so there was a case that happened uh back in 1963 um uh, during the civil rights uh turmoil of that era uh, it was a. It was about a week, two weeks after Martin Luther King's um, speech in Washington, um, and uh, a church was bombed in Birmingham, Alabama, the mm-hmm. 16th Street Baptist Church. Yep. So, um, this is. I'm just sitting at my desk one day, and I, I, it was in 2000. It must have been in 2000 because, uh, yeah, it was in 2000. I, uh, it was in the spring of 2000. So I got, I, a lead lands on my desk. Okay. And, and, uh, just all that means is that's just, uh, a request from another office to just go out and, and interview somebody. Or, you know, in this case, it was to serve a subpoena. And so, you know, the, when, when you get a lead from another office, um, they will, you know, they'll give you enough information for context of what, you know, if you're going to interview somebody that you at least have enough background to, to, you know, uh, intelligently interview Mm -hmm. them. Um, and so I was reading the background of this lead that I had, uh, and it was about a guy named Bobby Frank Cherry, who was, um, a suspect in this bombing that happened in 1963. Oh wow! Oh, so so the case actually there were people charged at the time, but in those days, state juries just basically didn't convict white mm-hmm. uh, uh, Klansmen, mm-hmm. um, and so th- the case had gone unsolved, uh, or at least not unsolved, I guess, but unadjudicated uh, yeah. uh, for many years. And the bureau had kept that case open, uh, although it was a cold case, obviously, but some. And I didn't work any of that, you know, anything to do with the case, but um, uh, they had developed some new evidence and new leads. And, and anyway, so now they were looking at, at Bobby Frank Cherry, who was one of the suspected bombers of this church. Well, by this time, by 2000, he had retired and moved from Alabama to a, 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 a lake community in East Texas. Okay, uh, on Cedar Creek Lake. Oh yeah, yeah. Between here and and uh, so um, went out, uh, served the subpoena on him, and uh, you know it was pretty routine. Uh, said there's a grand jury back in Alabama. You got this subpoena. He was you know an older guy. He was he wasn't combative and he wasn't uh, you know argumentative at all. Mm-hmm. Accepted it and that was that. So then I get another uh, subsequent lead after that. I guess whatever. You know the grand jury did whatever the grand jury did, but they and then they issued a, 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 a an arrest warrant for Cherry. He was indicted, and uh, so I went back and it wasn't just me, but went back with it with a team, and we arrested Bobby Frank Cherry. Um, and I, in fact, uh, uh, I'm the one that put the cuffs on him that day. And wow. and again, it wasn't um, you know it wasn't anything uh, you know it was just a routine deal. There was nothing dramatic about it in any way there was no resistance nothing like i say he was an older guy at this point um uh, so we arrested him without incident but the thing of it was that for me and and 
I can't help but get emotional about Take it. But uh, yeah. so the um, that that church uh, that was bombed and and four little girls, uh, you know, were killed. Uh, that happened the day I was born. Really, it was a Sunday, and uh, it just struck me that you know, thirty odd years later, wow. um, you know. The, the lead to arrest that guy, you know, landed on my desk. And, um, you know, that, that like I said, it wasn't just me. I, there were probably five or six of us out there. But, you know, I'm the guy that actually put the cuffs on him. Stuart. And, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it gets me every time uh, bringing it up. But um, so to me, it was uh, it was an epiphany. It was a uh, it was a uh, you know I think uh, I, I call it a God wink. You know that yeah. you know <laughs> I've got you right where I want you. Well, that concludes part one of my conversation with twenty nine year veteran of the FBI, Stuart Fillmore. Join us next week for part two, where we go to Alcatraz. Did the Anglin brothers actually survive? Stewart tells you what he thinks after a thorough investigation where he actually followed their escape to AT. Everything. He went through the exact exact same thing they did. And he has a conclusion as to what he thinks as to whether or not the Anglin brothers actually survived. Find out on the next episode of The Jason Rice Show. Well, that does it for this episode of the Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out.